Tonight I want to talk to you about the controversial Christ. When you think about our Lord and His preaching, His ministry was filled with tremendous great works. We're going to study about some of those tonight in Mark chapters 2 and 3. But wherever the Lord was preached and wherever He Himself taught, there quite often followed a great amount of conflict with that. Many people were not prepared for the kind of Savior that appeared. The Old Testament pictured the coming of the Christ, pictured the kind of nature that He would have. Isaiah 53 said, there's no beauty that we should desire Him. And He was despised and rejected among men. We should have known, but the reality was is that many people were looking for a powerful leader who was going to stand up to the Roman Empire and what came was a Savior teaching a message of salvation of the soul. And so they were not prepared for the message that he brought. Well, tonight we want to look at Mark 2 primarily and a little bit into Mark chapter 3 as we look at the man and his message and the controversy that it brought. And we're going to look at it like this. We're going to sort of look at the big picture, focus down and focus down. We're going to look at five controversial passages, if you will, five controversial verses. Then we're going to look at three basic conflicts. What kind of things can you distill out of those passages and come away with three major ideas and then to finally end up with one basic message? So let's take a little bit of time. Let's take our Bibles. I encourage you to open yours to Mark chapter 2, and we're going to begin there. The five verses are, and I'm going to read them for you, Mark chapter 2, verse 7. Why does this man speak blasphemies like this? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Verse 16. We read, and when the scribes and the Pharisees saw him eating with the tax collectors and sinners, they said to his disciples, How is it that he eats and drinks with tax collectors and sinners? Verse 18. The disciples of John and of the Pharisees were fasting. Then they came and said to him, Why do the disciples of John and of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Verse 24. And the Pharisees said to him, Look, why do they do what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And then finally, chapter 3 and verse 2 of Mark. So they watched him closely whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. Let's take those five and start looking at them. Let's look first of all at Mark chapter 2, verse 7, where he says, Why does this man speak blasphemies? To understand this, you have to appreciate the context of what is occurring. A man who is paralyzed, and I thought of Brother Don, that's what brought it to my mind. Here's a man who's paralyzed. The Lord has arrived back in Capernaum and the people are interested in what he's having to say, particularly the common people, and they're crowded into this little house. 
There's no more room in the house for the people to sit or to even stand. And there's not even room outside. Uh, you can imagine maybe a small room of a house. Take room seven over here. That room right there, what, how many people could you put in there? Maybe 20, 30 standing up? Then what if you, you took and double that number of people standing around on the outside? That's about all that could hear. But what his four friends did was to go and get up on the roof and to remove a section of the roof and let him down on that bed. And the Lord was amazed at their faith. He was impressed because they believed that he had the ability to heal him. And the Lord tells him his sins are forgiven. But you know, they considered that blasphemy. Among the Jews, they had three levels of blasphemy. Number one was where a person might, for instance, say something negative toward the law or toward even God. And for instance, like when Paul and Stephen were accused of blasphemy, it was because of what they said regarding the law. Then they considered another one where a person might, for instance, use an oath with the name of God. We might call it taking God's name in vain. And that was the second level. It was more serious. But the most serious was where a person would claim a prerogative that only belongs to God. Claim to be equal with God. And for them, that was the greatest of the blasphemies. And those, why does this man speak blasphemies like this? Who can forgive sins but God alone? And you know what the Lord did? He asked them the question, which is easier? To forgive sins or to tell a man to take up his bed and walk? Now, obviously, both of these are extremely difficult but only one of them can be visually verified, and that is when you tell a man to rise, take his bed, and walk. And so the Lord said, so that you may know that the Son of Man has power, has authority on earth to forgive sins. Rise, take up your bed, and walk. The man did. You see, this was an opportunity for a spiritual lesson. Here's a man who has a physical infirmity, but do you realize... That in the, the opportunity of teaching, in the opportunity of doing a benevolent deed, it still brought controversy. You can help people, you can go through all kinds of difficult situations, but when you teach the truth, it's going to often make people want to be controversial regarding it. But let's move on to verse 16. They said to his disciples, how is it that he eats and drinks with tax collectors and sinners? Again, it's valuable to see the picture. The Lord is evidently going along the area there near Capernaum, perhaps right near the Sea of Galilee. He comes along and there's a man by the name of Levi, the son of Alphaeus. He also is known by the name of Matthew. But Levi, son of Alphaeus, is a tax collector. And he evidently invites Jesus to dine at his house, to come and eat with him. You know, when you make friends, one of the first things you want to do is to, to enjoy a meal together with them. And so Jesus goes to the house of Matthew and he eats and he drinks. And immediately the people say, he's a friend, tax collectors and sinners. He's eating with them. 
For us, we might think, well, that's no big deal, but the tax collector was considered among the Jewish people to be a traitor. Why a traitor? Because they hated the Roman government and the tax collectors were raising money for the Roman government. They were collaborators with them. And you see, they hated this man. But you see, the truth has an interesting way of reaching seemingly unreachable people. Here's a man who's already agreed to be a part of the Roman government. Are there people there who are going to listen? Absolutely there are. And because of that, here's a way to reach unreachable people. But those scribes said, how is it he eats with tax collectors and sinners? Now drop down with me to verse 18. Why do the disciples of John and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? When you think about fasting, that's a a period of time going without food. Sometimes fasting lasted long periods of time. Remember Jesus, Matthew 4, Luke chapter 4, fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. That wasn't the custom. Fasts were often done during periods of afflicting of the soul. You remember in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 as he discussed a husband and a wife and he said that they come together and the only reason why they're able to stay apart is for fasting and prayer. In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus said, When you fast, don't disfigure your face. Don't let yourself appear to be fasting because you're doing it for God, you're not doing it for man. We go to Luke chapter 18 and verse 12. And you remember the Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself. And he said, I fast twice a week. Perhaps he took a whole day during a week and he said, I'm not going to eat anything today because I'm going to be devoted to God. Fasting twice a week. But Jesus did not fast, nor did his disciples. In fact, according to Luke chapter 7 and verse 34, he was called a wine-bibber and a glutton. Why did they call him that? Because he didn't fast. wasn't because he overate. wasn't because he was a wino, but because he didn't fast like they fasted. Of course, Jesus explains here. He said, as long as the bridegroom is here... The groomsmen, they're not going to fast. There will come a time when fasting will take place, but you don't do it during a period of festivities. You know, we're going to have a fellowship meal, and when we have a fellowship meal, what does everybody say? Well, I can't eat today. I'm going to fast. No, you you plan around uh, events of joy and events of happiness. And that's exactly what he is describing here But they're wanting to say, why don't they fast? Luke 7, verse 34. Now let's look at verse 24. Why do they do what is not lawful on the Sabbath? Uh, Here's what was taking place. The disciples are walking through the grain fields. Very likely there are paths through these grain fields. That was the way that... Many times people would get from one location to another. They would 
go through the wayside. You remember the parable of the Lord in Luke chapter 8, Matthew chapter 13, the parable of the soils, that which is sown by the wayside. So they're going through the fields, these grain fields, and they take and they grab some of the heads of the grain. And if you parallel this with Matthew's account, and they take and they grind them in their hands and they eat them. The reason why they're doing this is because they're hungry. And because they're eating of this grain and they're grinding in their hands, you know what the Pharisees are saying? Aha! They are harvesting. They are grinding grain. They're working on the Sabbath day. And so because of that, they accuse them and saying they're doing not what is not lawful. But you see, this was a plan that was given by God. In Deuteronomy 23, verse 25, we read, When you come into your neighbor's standing grain, you may pluck the heads with your hand, but you shall not use a sickle on your neighbor's standing grain. The Lord intended that there be a little bit of, of sharing, but that sharing only goes so far. You're walking through a man's orchard, and you're hungry, you can reach up and you can pull an apple. But if you're walking through a man's orchard, you can't say, okay, let me get my sack out, let me fill my sack full of apples. You see, God made provision. But their idea is, well, they're, they're harvesting on the Sabbath day. And the Lord had to respond to them. He said, don't you remember what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him? How did he went in and ate the showbread which was not lawful for him to eat, nor those who were with him? If you're reading Matthew's account, Matthew also makes it clear that what about the priest? What they do, how they work, they make fire on the Sabbath day and they are guiltless. He said the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. They didn't understand that what the disciples were doing was not sinful. It was not wrong. But that produced controversy. Then you go to chapter 3 and let's look at verse 2. Jesus went a second time into the synagogue and he's still at Capernaum. There's that synagogue which right there in the middle of the city you can uh, imagine a man going to the synagogue and this man comes in who has a withered hand. Um, I've known several people in my lifetime whose hands were withered. Uh, growing up, one of the friends of my father on the car lot was a man who often would work on cars, and, and he had a little shriveled up hand, huge hand on his right hand, but his left hand was shriveled up maybe a, a third the size. Here's this man, he comes in, and uh, he has this shriveled up hand. And he's evidently coming there to worship. And Jesus is going to ask the question, is it appropriate to do good on the Sabbath? Well, that's a significant question. But Jesus already knows what's in their hearts. He knows what they're thinking. And so the Lord tells, uh, restores this man's hand to him. And they are incensed by it. You see, this opportunity 
was to teach the value of a man's life. And the Lord was angry at the hardness of their heart. They couldn't have compassion on that man whose hand was withered. They certainly weren't like the four men who tried to take care of their friend who was paralyzed. Now, for just a minute, let's take those things and let's realize that you can summarize them under three categories. They are conflict over forgiveness, conflict over sinners, and conflict over tradition. Those are the three main areas where the conflict arises. When you think about conflict over forgiveness, the conflict here started out was, who has the authority to forgive? Because they didn't believe that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of God. They didn't think He had the right, the power, the authority to forgive sins. You know, one of the things that we have to impress upon people today, you know, they want to come and sit and talk with a preacher and say, well, I need to be forgiven of my sins. Preachers don't forgive sins. At least not sins before God. We may forgive someone who sins against us, but it's only God who forgives sins. And in that, they were correct, but what they were incorrect upon was the fact that Jesus was the Christ. John 8 and verse 24, Jesus said to them that they would die in their sins. He said, if you do not believe that I am He, you will die in your sins. What does that mean, I am He? Same sort of question arose in Matthew 16. You remember verse 13, he came to the region of Caesarea Philippi. He asked his disciples, who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And Some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, others Jeremiah, one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, you are the Christ. Christos, you're the Messiah, the Son of the living God. You see, Peter answered correctly. But then that wouldn't have settled the issue for some of them, even though Jesus was God in the flesh. There were some people that they believed did not deserve to be forgiven. You look at a tax collector, and you look at him and say, that man's not worthy of being forgiven. And you look at a person who may have previously been a harlot or a person who may have been a thief. And if you'll remember in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11, Paul enumerates a number of sins of which the Corinthians had been guilty and said, and such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified. This kind of attitude was possessed in the parable of the prodigal son. When you and I read the parable of the prodigal son, we often say that it's the parable of the prodigal son because that's where we place the emphasis. But what I like to say is there is in Luke 15 the parable of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost sons, plural. Yes, there was the prodigal son who went and lived in a far country with riotous living. But there was also the other son who was in error. 
You begin reading in verse 25. It says the older son was in the field and he came, drew near the house, heard music and dancing. So he called one of his servants and asked him what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come because he is your father has received him safe and sound. He's killed the fatted calf. He was angry, would not go in. Therefore, his father came out and pleaded with him. And he answered and said to his father, Lo, these many years I have been serving you and have never transgressed the commandment of yours at any time. And you never gave me a young goat that I might make merry with my friends. But as soon as this son of yours came, who has devoured your livelihood with harlots, you have killed the fatted calf for him. And you said, he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that I have is yours. It was right that we should make merry and be glad. For your brother was dead and is alive again, was lost and is found. The purpose of this parable was to talk about the value of the lost prodigal son to the older son. To point out how valuable he was. And sometimes we miss the point of that parable. And certainly the Pharisees had missed it because of the value of everyone. Sometimes people misunderstood the work of Jesus among the sinners. They looked at Jesus and how he worked in and among sinners and they would say, why is he being friends with them? And in a sense, you have to be careful who you choose to be your friends. In 1 Corinthians 15, verse 33, Paul would say, Do not be deceived. Evil companions or evil company corrupts good habits. Proverbs chapter 13, verse 20 says, He who walks with wise men will be wise, but the companion of fools will be destroyed. Yes, that's true. But the Lord did not choose to associate with the tax collectors and sinners to approve their behavior or to acknowledge their behavior. He spent time with them to try to teach them to save their souls. I think about what occurred in Jericho. I can visualize the Lord walking through there and a crowd following around him. In fact, all the way around where he can barely walk. And you look up in the tree and there's this little short man by the name of Zacchaeus. But he also is a tax collector like Matthew was. And because of that, people did not want him to have any sort of of acknowledgement from Jesus. But when they had saw it, they all complained, saying, He's gone to be a guest with a man who's a sinner. And then Zacchaeus stood and said, Lord, I give half of my goods to feed the poor. If I've taken anything from anyone by false accusation, I restore fourfold. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to your, this house because he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. To seek, that means you've got to go where the sinners are. You've got to find the sinner and be able to impress upon them the message of truth. The third conflict was that of over-tradition. And the Pharisees and the scribes had developed their own tradition 
And here's the, the key. Human traditions are not binding. In Matthew 15, the question arisen, why aren't you washing your hands like the, the tradition of the elders say we should? And the Lord responds to them in verse 7 by saying, you're hypocrites. Isaiah prophesied of you, this people draws near to me with their mouth, honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And he says, they worship me in vain, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. They're human traditions. Titus 1, 13 and 14 says, they turn men from the truth. Colossians 2 and verse 8 says that this is not according to Christ. Well, that brings me to the final point, the one basic message. Jesus was popular among the common people. You read Mark 2, Mark 3, it's obvious. The crowds of the people are gathering around about him, but the spiritual elite are saying, leave him alone. Don't have anything to do with him. But the Lord was compassionate. He cared about people. He cared about them physically, but he most of all cared about them spiritually. And what made him so controversial was the fact that the gospel message was for all. So that's really where you get down to it. It doesn't matter who you are, where you're from, rich or poor, Black, white, old or young, gospel messages for all. In Romans 10, 12, and 13, for there's no distinction between the Jew and Greek, for the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him. For whoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. In Acts 2, verse 38, when Peter invited everyone to come, he says, The promise is to you, to your children, and to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God shall call. And Peter observed in Acts 10, verse 34, he says, I perceive that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, whoever fears him and works righteousness is accepted with him. That's the basic message. So I'm reading Mark 2 and Mark 3, and I see a controversial Christ, but it shouldn't be because he loves every man's soul. I have no doubt if the Lord were here today, he'd also be controversial. I have no doubt that the Lord would look at each of these congregations that are worshiping him and making a show and say, you're not pleasing me. Would the Lord look at us and say, you're not reaching out to everybody. You're not looking at the poor, the downtrodden, those people who may not want, you wouldn't want to associate with them. Are you trying to reach them? I have no doubt that as the Lord exposed the sins of this world, John 3, 17 through 21 talked about how that if you expose the sin, you bring it to light, people will reject it. But we end tonight with the question, is he your Lord? Is he your Savior? What is your view of him? Do you believe he's the Christ, the Son of the living God? If you do, great. That's not enough on its, by itself. You remember James chapter 2 says the demons, the devils, they believe and tremble. You've got to do more than that. Are you willing to repent of your sins? To change the way you view 
the sinful life that you've lived, to turn around from it, to confess His name before men, and then to be baptized, to have your sins washed away. If you're ready tonight, we're ready. The Lord's ready. You just got to make the decision yourself what you're going to do. Do you need to come home? Do you need to be restored to faithfulness? The Lord bids you to come. We're going to sing, Who at the door is standing? If you need to respond, please come as we stand and sing.